Hey, welcome to tonight's show. Uh, my name is Charlotte. I'm your host. It's been an interesting day to say the least, but I'm glad I was able to do this, and I'm glad to see you guys here because you guys are what's matter, or what matters rather. I am the uh, owner and operator of California Haunts Paranormal Investigation Team from Sacramento, California. We have 35 members up and down the state of California, Oregon, Washington, and Hawaii. Anyway, I'm glad you're all here. We've got a great guest tonight, and I'm going to be your host, of course. I forgot that part. Let me turn this. Okay, there we go. Um, we got a great guest tonight, Dr. Ah, Dr. Dan Friedman. Dr. Dan Friedman and his father wrote a book about Jack the Ripper. And doing their you know, doing their research, they found out some surprising things and and, and, and they've come up with, with a suspect that you just don't normally expect. You know, so it's gonna be interesting to see what he has to say. Let me dial in because I gotta call him. He lives in New York, so let me dial in or dial in for dollars today. Uh oh, so I start. Hello, this is Dan Hi, how you doing, sir? Good, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Are you ready to rock and roll? I am ready to rock and roll. Great, great, great Caesar's ghost. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what it means. <laughs> That's why I'm like that. Exactly, exactly. Well, tell me a little bit about yourself, sir, and how you got interested in you know, doing this research on this book. Um, I'll tell you a little bit about myself. I am a uh, pediatrician practicing in Long Island, New York. Um, I actually got involved in this book from a different route. Um, I want to tell you, a, a strange series of, uh, I guess you call them coincidences, occurred while I was locked away as a prisoner in the medical school library and preparing for my board exams. Mm -hmm. uh, everything I pulled up the library shelf had an article that Martha Conan Doyle's medical career. And truthfully, I expected them to be about him making these great diagnoses on patients and putting it into the Sherlock Holmes tales, but they had nothing to do with it. Uh, they were actually very bizarre. They, 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 everyone was stranger than the other. One article was like, named him as the sole perpetrator of the Piltdown, the Piltdown Man hoax. Uh, and if you know, that's like with the, with the skull of the orangutan and he'd been mixed together with the jaw. Mm -hmm. uh, another one uh, was about Robert Koch, who's one of the greatest scientific minds of his time, uh, and how Doyle broke into his top secret laboratory, read through all of his data, and published an article in England and how the research of Robert Koch was uh, invalid. And the one that really got me going on this book and that's what I'm going to focus most of my energy on, is his medical school thesis, uh, and how it was about the leak data of syphilis, which is a sexually transmitted disease. Interesting. Uh, yeah, it was like Doyle in this article, was like, in his 
with these vignette patients, but it was really, it must have been someone very personal to him, very close to him. And then I found another article written by Doyle where he demanded that prostitutes get locked away for months at a time and getting like gynecological examinations performed on them to determine if they had syphilis. So I was left with this impression that Doyle was, you know, he would have, he had like any kind of remorse, mm-hmm. that he was willing to ambush people, embarrass people, and that syphilis was definitely weighing heavy on his mind. So that's how I got involved in this. Interesting. Very interesting. And um, you wrote the book with your father, correct? That's correct, yes. My, my dad... Uh, loved uh, Sherlock Holmes as a kid, and he got interested in Sherlock Holmes from the comic book, from the classic illustrated. Uh, when I told him, I thought something was really wrong, you know, with, with, or, or killed it with Conan Doyle's personality. Like, you know, I'm not surprised, you know. He was, he had a very interesting life, and he knew a lot about the early childhood of this, of this kid who was a, a boxer and a whaler, because I'm from the classic illustrated from the back of the magazine. Mm-hmm. And we decided to do some investigative research into what was Doyle doing up until he was 30 years old. And the stuff we found out about him is the basis of this entire book. And what did you find out? Well, I mean, first we, well, remember, I found out that Doyle had syphilis on his mind. He was right. writing articles. He was he was being a very, and he lied, actually, in one of his articles that he said that, you know, the, the streets of uh, Portsmouth were filled with vile women and, and housing is being destroyed by them. And one of the other members of, uh, of his hospital called him out on that and said, you, you're lying about all the things you just wrote about. And Doyle had to retract the statement in the next issue of the magazine. So we went to find out what was going on in his life. And what it was, was that we found that, that Doyle came from a dysfunctional family. His father was uh, an alcoholic. Uh, 
they wound up that he went to these uh, went to a, a dysomania place to you know to dry up, and he wound up having seizures and delusions and paranoia, uh, magical thinking. He thought he could talk to birds. He was seeing fairies, and then I went. I called up the the the, the, the asylum that he was that he was made an inmate, and they sent me his medical records. And I went through them because as a physician, I was able to talk to people there, and I could understand his the the, uh, the findings in the chart. And what I found was that his father's only finding on the initial presentation to the hospital was that he had a, a, an absent knee-jerk reflex, um, which doesn't really mean that much to a lot of people out there, but I read Doyle's medical school thesis, and in his thesis, he actually places emphasis on people with tabitocellus, which is called which is tertiary syphilis, the last phase of the syphilis before you die, and how those people have this absent knee-jerk reflex, and if they have it, they have syphilis until proven otherwise. And everything started to make sense in my mind about what was going on with Doyle, why he was writing these articles about getting prostitutes off the streets, um, and and then of course becomes the Ripper and what the Ripper was doing and what people thought he was doing. So that was the basic origins of what got me going on this crusade to find out what Doyle did and what Jack the Ripper did and how one could be the same. That's fascinating, and. Um you were able to uh, look at some of the, the suspects that, that, you know, had been chosen, and you were able to um, kind of debunk some of those suspects, correct? Yeah, you know, what happened was, I, I got to admit, when I was a, when I was a kid, uh, the first thing I, I, I remember watching was this, this TV, made-for-TV movie with uh, Michael Caine, and he played the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the Queen's Royal Physician, mm-hmm. uh, William Gull. And I actually thought it was uh, Dr. Gull who was Jack the Ripper all my life, up until I, you know, I did, you know, I was writing this this thing of who could be Jack the Ripper, and I had to prove that the people that people have made suspect could not be, and I had to prove it beyond the shadow of a doubt. Well, William Gull, who was who was one of the prime suspects, was 72 years old at the time of the murders, and what people don't know is he suffered a tragic, very a, a paralytic stroke uh, 18 months prior to the Ripper crime. So you gotta imagine a man like 72 years old chasing after 40 year old women who, and these women were unfortunate women. I mean, they were prostitutes, yes, but we can't be too hard on them. They were unfortunate class, they had no money. In order to like subsist or exist, they had to actually sell their bodies for for money to stay in and sleep in in what we call a DOS house. So you got a a 72 year old, and they they would fight, and they would get into bar fights, and in fact, victim number four actually was in jail the night of her death so these these were tough women and you know you got a picture of the 72 year old man who i thought was the prime suspect running down the streets in the east end right. um flapping an arm in the air who were cradling it to, to prevent it from uh from flapping and then subduing his tar- targets because he targeted these women these 40 year old women uh strangling them without them screaming with one hand of course and then mutilating them in less than five minutes time so I basically, wow. he was exonerated. So, and then of course, there were other people that I was made to go and find out answers to, like, could it have been H.H. Um, H. Holmes? Mm-hmm. You know, and H.H. You know, H. Holmes is a definite serial killer, but right. he's not the Ripper. Uh, because in my mind, and a lot of detectives who may be listening to your radio show know that that uh, that M.O.s of a, of a serial killer really don't change, and, that, and that's how you get them. Mm-hmm. And, and H.H. Holmes was really 
power and strength, who had surgical skills, who could get out, who, who wasn't afraid to be confrontational with the police. Mm-hmm. So, I'm thinking about H.H. H. Holmes. He did basically everything indoors inside his castle that he had brick walls made that led to nowhere. But the Ripper was out on the streets of the East End. Anybody could have seen him. Anybody could have tried to stop him, including the police that were out and about. By murder number three and four, there were uh, vigilance committees out to get him, amateur sleuths trying to get him, mm-hmm. the two separate police forces were out to get him, and he wasn't afraid to do two murders in one night, and then stay up for another couple of hours and write on a wall with chalk. So th- these two men can't be the same. And I actually spoke to the author of uh, Devil in the White City about it, and he confided to me that he, he tried and, and he couldn't really connect the river to Holmes, H.H. H. Holmes, so uh, I, I got rid of him too. So that's kind of two of the suspects I, I had to exonerate, and I'm sure everybody knows about, um, I mean, Walter Sickert, I don't know, in the 70s about that painting that was found, like the 1908 painting by the English Impressionist Walter Sickert, that it, it's called What Should We Do to Pay the Rent? And it purportedly showed the Ripper uh, lamenting and crying over the bed of the victim he just killed. But, and uh, one of the uh, noted uh, thriller writers, who's great, Patricia Cromwell, went out, was so impressed by this theory that she actually bought that picture and then tried to study the, the fragments of DNA on it. Uh, and then she tried to also connect this paper called Perry Paper to the to Sickert and show that the Ripper used Perry Paper and Walter Sickert did too. And of course, I'm looking after one person in particular, which is Arthur Conan Doyle, and my publisher said, if you can't show me that Arthur Conan Doyle had period paper, and I don't want no empty theories here because, you know, Walter Sickert's an artist, and Arthur Conan Doyle's family were great artists. I don't want that. He wanted, you know, definite proof. And I found it almost, believe it or not, immediately. I read through a textbook of Doyle's favorite teacher in pathology, William Rutherford. Uh, Doyle actually modeled Professor Challenger after him, and this is the person that he actually did river section work with. And... Rutherford's textbook states that you must use the smooth but not too highly glazed antique silk paper made by Peary and Son. So Doyle was a student. Doyle worked in the business section lab with them. Doyle had to have been using that paper. That was my connection. You know, no empty theory that Doyle had Peary paper. No ifs, ands, no buts. Hmm. Interesting. And um, the, the, I know I read some of your book. And didn't Doyle take people on or go on tours of, of the areas where the murders that happened? Oh, yeah, no, and actually, that's the basis of my book. Okay. That I based it on a, a very not well-known tour that Doyle went on in 1905. He actually toured the Jack the Ripper sites with the, what we call his murder club, uh, people that were students of criminology, and he went with Gordon Brown, who was actually the, um, well, he did autopsy on uh, murder victim number four. And I thought it would be a great idea to, instead of having well, Gordon Brown be the tour guide, have Doyle become the tour guide in my book, so we could really present evidence, go over the facts, explore every you know, single crime scene, uh, to put the pieces together, show how things fit. And, and what I want to tell you is, what, what the, the amazing thing is that the, the Ripper is like Doyle. You know, when you read Sherlock Holmes, you're looking for clues, right? You know, you're not just reading the story to find out who killed someone without trying to find the clues. The, all, all murder sites were, 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 like, there were Easter eggs planted at every one of these murder sites. You know, it, everything was done with a purpose. You know, I'm going to start with uh, two of the victims had thimbles that were planted next to them. 
revenge. He was doing it for an act of revenge, and he wanted people to know it. Remember, the people didn't know what his motive was, even today. And I'm going to tell you what, what we got here. Okay. The symbols. Uh, do you remember Peter Pan? Yes. Peter gives Wendy an acorn. Right. As a, as a kiss. And then Wendy gives Peter Pan a thimble. To, that represents a kiss or fidelity. That the Ripper, the murder site, and these are all in the inquest, so if anybody wants to verify, you can read all the inquest reports in the newspapers. Handkerchiefs for President Everett. Handkerchiefs not belonging to the victim for President every single seat. Hmm. And handkerchiefs may not sound important to anybody. Yes, it's a handkerchief. Maybe you used to wipe his knife off. No. Handkerchiefs were left, because if one remembers, you know, this is the time where symbols were left, Baudelaire, Malamé, they left symbols, they, they spoke about symbols. Well, if one remembers Shakespeare in Othello, um, the evil, evil Iago uses handkerchiefs to manipulate uh, the feelings that Othello had for Desdemona, and it becomes a symbol of her infidelity. And we have, of course, the Ripper took the rings, which is a symbol of love, and eternal love off the victim's fingers. So, again, three things that all relate to infidelity were found at the scenes. So forget about coins and all these things that people thought were black magic rituals. No, the reason behind it was they were they were meant to imply something, and it was done by a genius, someone who really had a knowledge of the bard. So this is not a, 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 someone who was not educated, a very smart man mm -hmm. was behind this. And, and of course, if you read the, the reports, the coroner's reports, every single coroner who did it said that whoever the Ripper was possessed surgical knowledge. Not just, and I'll explain, I mean, if you were going to commit a murder in the, in, out in the open, you mm -hmm. would pick an area with light or no light. Well, the Ripper picked the darkest corner in Miter Square, victim number four, and the darkest point, no light source. And he was able to do an abdominal mutilation on her, but he avoided going down her navel. He actually made a flap purposely around her navel, which all surgeons do in the OR. Right. So if you were just a homicidal maniac or a butcher or something, you're just going to slice right down the middle. But the Ripper didn't do that. He uh, purposely avoided the navel, doing a real surgical incision. Uh, murder number two which was in the backyard of someone's house, he actually avoided a pelvic incision. So this is someone who has midwifery skills, or what we call gynecology skills, OBGYN skills. Mm -hmm. And he avoided the cervix. And the coroner said that was, whoever did this, did it with one sleep of the night and knew exactly how to avoid cutting her cervix. Well, just so the audience knows, Arthur Conan Doyle, when he graduated medical school, he, did, he put up a, a plaque he advertised his midwifery skills. He did not advertise himself as a doctor. He wanted to do midwifery or GYN. So he had those skills prior to the, the murders of 1888. So these are the things that he did at the murder sites, but the one that is not known to anybody, well, people know that the Ripper had to have been a, a Mason. And, and I'm gonna give a little bit of a disclaimer here. The Freemasons are a fraternity that is an organization that is for community service, for helping people. They they they're at all the events. I mean, they're a wonderful organization. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they get a rogue member. Even the police force will have a rogue member. Physicians have rogue members in them. I mean, you do have some doctors who go into jail for you know killing patients. I mean, right. it, it's, it's a known fact. Any 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 profession, you can get a rogue. So I'm not saying that. 
that the Freemasons were out to kill people. They were not. They had one member who did. Um, and one of the clues left by the Roberto, after two murders in one day, was writing on a wall where he used the word Jews, J-U-W-E-S, which implies that he's talking about a ritual that back in the 1880s, anybody who joined the Freemasons would have to do. So I figured out, and so did everybody else, that the Ripper had to have been a Freemason. And of course, before the murders were committed, Arthur Conan Doyle in 1887 decided to join the Freemasons. Oh. Not only did he join the Freemasons, he rose to third degree Master Mason in, in, in literally two months. So he learned all the rituals, everything. He had it memorized, and he had to do a play. He had to reenact the death of like this, the Master Mason of King Solomon, whose name is Hiram Abyss. And what happens is Hiram Abyss is like the possessor of the secret word. And if you know the secret word, that they do the Master Mason. And these three uh, ruffians, they call them, uh, Jubala, Jubala, and Jubalum, decided to uh, to kill him, to get, the, get that word or kill him, and he refused. And the first attack by Jubala was to hit uh, Hiram Abyss across the neck. And then the second attack by Jubala, I believe, was to uh, rip open the abdomen and place the intestines over the left shoulder and put the left hand on the left breast. And the third uh, attack by Jubalum was a head, you know, with a gas to the head, with this mask over the head. So I'm going to go through this because this is the, this is the best thing sure. I did in my my research to figure out the Masonic connection. Absolutely, go ahead. And that and that is that at murder number one. So for the ripperologists out who are listening, you all know that murder number one was a neck the throat was slashed open and that the abdomen was cut open. Mm -hmm. But if you do remember, that's not what they saw at the crime scene. Any, no observer saw all that and no police saw it. All they saw was a neck wound because the Ripper, in less than five or seven minutes, put back on her dress to put all the, stays, the, 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 the straps back on, the stays back on, the bodices on. She was fully dressed. No one knew that she had abdominal incision until she was in the in the autopsy room in the morgue. So the only thing you saw was the neck wound, which is the first penal sign that Doyle had to learn when he was a Freemason, which is a wound to Hiram Abyss' neck. The second murder that of Ann Chapman was she had was found with her left hand on her left breast and her intestines still attached but thrown over her left shoulder. And that is what is known as the second penal sign of, of that play that Doyle had to reenact. The third murder, he was basically, the Ripper was basically caught, basically, he was going to be caught, so he fled the scene. The only did was slash the neck. But he committed another mur murder like an hour later. And on that murder, unlike all the other he, he performed, there were facial incisions carefully done on the victim. And if you remember, Jubilum killed Hiram Abed by smashing him against the face. So it's penal sign one, two, and three in order performed by the Ripper. And that's the Masonic connection. It's not just that word on, on the Goulston Street uh, model dwelling homes. It's those, the way he orchestrated those three killings. That's fascinating. And he, you know, and, and, and did he leave, leave like, you know, he, um, like any hints in, in his books at all that that, that might have been related? Oh, sure. I mean, well, there's some great stuff that, you know, Doyle, you know, if, if you're going to be the Ripper and you want to toy with the collective psyches of everybody,
everybody. You might as well just leave some clues when you get famous. Just so everybody in the audience knows, the first couple of Sherlock Holmes tales were failures. Complete failures. No one, no, Doyle was not famous at the time of the murders, yes. Uh, a study in Scarlet was out in 1887. No one read it. No one knew what the heck it was. Doyle was not famous. The sign of the four came out later. Uh, he was not famous. He didn't get famous until a scandal of Bohemia years mm -hmm. later. So Doyle was a nobody at this time. Uh, so when he started writing his his uh, his, his stories, um, the one I love the most is the uh, the sign of the four, his second one. So this is about written about three years after the murders were take, had taken place. But of course, Doyle doesn't want to do that. He makes the story take place in what else? You know, September of eighteen eighty eight right in the heart of all the Jack the Ripper murders. And one of the things that he does is he wants to tell, Sherlock Holmes tells Watson, I want you to get a dog, a sleuth dog, and I want you to go to three pension lane to get it. And, it, and I, you have to be there at 1 a.m. Um, and of course, that means nothing to anybody, including Ripperologists who are listening. Mm -hmm. Unless you know that Dunfield Yard was the site of murder number three. But Mr. Dunfield, whose name went to that yard, moved to Five Tension Lane in 1887. So where Watson is at 1 a.m., which is exactly the time of the of that murder, uh, he is in Duckfield's yard. So he's at the side of, he's at the, the, the scene of the crime, the, the, of the day, if you go, he's at Duckfield's yard at 1 a.m. So that is one of the, these, these things that Dory will leave behind. He also, in the cardboard box, he tells, uh, there's a letter that says um, he finds ears, two severed ears, and he's able to figure out that it was a double murder. Um, if you read the Ripper letters, one of those Ripper letters says, I'm going to clip off the ears of my victim and send them to you. But he did. He sent the kidney instead, which, again, um, taking out a kidney in pitch darkness because it was the darkest corner of Midas Square, uh, it sounds easy. You have to have surgical skills. You have to know it's not easy to find a kidney. Right. It's not easy to strangle someone, open them up, um, slit their necks, um, cut their faces with really precise incisions, cut, almost clip off an ear, and then find a kidney. The Ripper could, he had surgical skills. And the, and the operation performed to do that was an anterior approach to the kidney. Most doctors were trained to do it from the back, but in the University of Edinburgh, where Joe Bell was a surgeon, you learned how to do it from the front. An interior approach, and Doyle was trained by Joe Bell, so I, I expect that Doyle knew how to take out a kidney from an anterior approach, and so did the Ripper in five minutes. Wow, wow! Hey, you, 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 you know what we haven't mentioned yet is the Prince, because wasn't the Prince suspected as well? Who the, the Prince? Or what? Oh, yeah, I mean the, the Prince. He. I, he really can't. He was. He was in Balmoral Castle. He was in. He was in like, in Scotland. So unless he could teleport himself, I don't think Prince Albert Victor was going to be in London. I mean, it's not. He's not down the road, and he was. Mm -hmm. He was on record entertaining royalty from I think. I think it was Germany at the time of the murders. So I'm. And let me ask you this. I mean, it, it, tell me if I'm off base, but if you saw the the royal coach coming down in Whitechapel. I think you would be like, oh my God, that's the royal coach. Yeah. And, and you also have to remember that people did see the Ripper. But they, they just didn't think anything of it. They, 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 had, they positively ID'd him. They, they saw his face. They, they saw him. Anybody would know who Prince Albert Victor was. Mm -hmm. He's like a celebrity. He's like seeing Justin Bieber. I mean, or, or 
Yeah. I mean, someone would have thought of something. So I'm going to tell you, I'm going to get rid of the two Clarence Red. Uh, I'm going to get rid of him. I'm going to exonerate that man. That makes sense to me, though. That, that's right. Yeah, people would recognize him. So yeah, I mean, I mean, they, they had, and the thing about the recognition, which I love, is that they, the outfit that, that the Ripper was wearing. Do, do you know what they saw him in? They saw him with a a, 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 a traveling cap, which is like a deerstalker hat, right? And a navy pea coat and a red scarf around his neck. Just so you know, Sherlock Holmes in the, the first story is dressed in that exact same outfit. He's not dressed in like that, you know, what you think of a tartan. He's dressed in a navy pea coat with a traveler's cap with a red scarf around his neck. So <laughs> <laughs> the identification, it's, it's like he's actually saying, here I am, this is what I'm going to be wearing. I, I was thinking now, as you were describing what he was wearing, that that's what I remembered, uh, remembered with Holmes, was that outfit. That's just yeah. absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and you remember, Doyle would have had a Navy peacoat because he was a, a whaler in the Arctic, right. where he learned how to skin, you know, the, 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 you know, skin seals and kill whales. And he even told people, and, he, and people pulled out for this, he was the best on that boat. You're talking, these are experienced whalers and sealers. And... Just speaking about boating, I mean, this, Doyle is the most reckless guy. I mean, ask yourself that. Would you jump up a, shark, up a boat into shark-infested water and swim around the boat? No. Seeing a shark in the water, Doyle did. When he was in, he did, he did a stint as a, uh, a ship surgeon uh, to uh, the, uh, the west coast of Africa. He actually jumped up the boat, seeing a shark, and swim around the boat. And he also did something that you're not really supposed to do, which is, uh, sell firearms to warring African tribes. So he was arms running. You know, he was doing some crazy stuff. This guy. He's people. People think of him as being the you know, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but he had a little crazy, reckless side here too. That's a, yeah. The, 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 what you're saying makes a lot of sense. I can't wait to read the rest of the book because you got me so interested. You know, in oh, this because you. it makes a lot of sense. You know what you put together. Were you um? I really appreciate that. Were, were, were you astounded? I mean, I don't want to use the word astounded, but I mean, was it kind of shocking when you started to realize all this? Uh, you gotta remember that I I love Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. I I fell in love with Sherlock Holmes when I watched you know young Sherlock Holmes as a kid. I also uh, appreciate Arthur Conan Doyle being a medical student, and what got me, of course, was the first thing was I read when I read Arthur Conan Doyle's medical school thesis. I wasn't reading it really just to read it to see if it was Jack Ripper. I had no idea that was going to come you know, a couple of years later. I read it to see what this 25-year-old was doing when I was 25 years old. I could not write what he was doing at that at that age. He is so super smart. I had so much respect for him. And, and just, you know, when I read his thesis, one thing that really got me again, because remember, my whole connection is that Doyle's father, I believe, had syphilis, and I think Doyle himself thought he had syphilis. Right. And he, he thought his father gave it to him. Which doesn't sound quite right, but you know, because you know, you, you think we know about syphilis being, you know, you can't, you, mothers can give it to their their kids, but the father can't. But back in the day, they learned Lamarckian inheritance that the father gave it to the son, who gave it to his son. And as a matter of fact, Doyle wrote a book, The Third Generation, where he talks about the grandfather being the seedy guy who had syphilis, and he gave it to this noble guy who had to kill himself because he doesn't want to get married and ruin a girl's life. So it is. Those three generations of, of syphilis, he actually wrote about this. Um, Doyle, in his medical school thesis, actually ends his thesis with this very odd confession, and it was one of the things that really got me. 
to me because, I mean, I, I'm working on two books myself right now, and I mean, it's really time-consuming, especially, well, 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 you've written this book, especially when you get in the zone on writing these things. So it amazes me with the amount of stuff that he wrote that he even had the time to go out and do this. Well, remember, at this time, 
in his life, he was he was not the famous author Conan Doyle that you okay. know. He was a struggling uh, private practitioner trying to get himself patients. He had none. I mean, he was. A, he actually said that he had two rooms: a, a waiting room and a consultation room that served as a waiting room because he had no patients. He was. That's why he tried to go into ophthalmology to become an ophthalmologist, but that failed too. And he actually abandoned um, his dreams of becoming a, a doctor right after he became famous with the scandal of Bohemia. So he he wasn't like writing and writing and writing. He was trying to get his practice going at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and he had, as I mentioned, the failed Sherlock Holmes first story, uh, a study in Scarlet. So he really didn't. He wasn't going anywhere at this time in his life. And like you said, whoever did this was highly intelligent, you know, to be able yes. to do all that stuff in the dark. So it makes a lot of sense that, that it was him. Right. And, and, and let me explain the door. One thing I wanted to tell the readers, that's one of the things I actually purposely chose to investigate, was how Jack the Ripper, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying Doyle here, how Jack the Ripper was able to commit his murders in pitch darkness with surgically precise incisions being mm-hmm. done. Like rebuttoning up people's dresses, taking out cervix pieces and uterine pieces, taking out kidneys, making really, uh, really careful markings on the face. I mean, you have to be able to see something. And I had to figure out a way how he did this. If right. he wasn't carrying a lantern, he would have triggered the police to look for him. I mean, you got to remember that, that murdered away to the facial incisions. He already killed someone already. The police were out to get him. Everybody was looking for him on the streets. So it was like people knew he was out. Um, but I read when he was, he also had a column in the British Journal of Photography. Now, many people may know this, but Arthur Conan Doyle, before he was a doctor, was a very uh, well-known writer for the British Journal of Photography. He had his own column, Where to Go with the Camera. And he actually writes that he was able to make a makeshift darkroom by taking red muslin cloth and wrapping it, uh, wrapping it around his lantern to create a thing that you want to overexpose. Mm-hmm. So, of course, the Ripper was spotted with a red scarf around his neck at the, at the times of the, of the crimes. And, of course, that's what the Ripper could have done, is taken, or, or, or Doyle, who knew how to do this, take his scarf and wrap it around his lantern to the point where he was able to see and commit his murders. Doyle's eyes is uh, working in the darkroom, so all these years he would have easily accommodated. You know, I, just, I, mean, I, I don't know. Who, I don't know who really else has that that knowledge base to do it. I mean, is it Aaron Kuzminski? I mean, the guy they thought uh, was the Ripper because they found the shawl. I mean, my publisher was like calling me, my friends called me, you're done, <laughs> they found DNA evidence that this guy is the Ripper. And I'm like, Kuzminski? He was a hundred pounds, he was like the Charles Atlas, uh, what they call the, the 97 pound weakling. He, I think he was 97 pounds. He's not fighting off street women. They would have knocked his teeth out. And, then I said, wait a minute, the Ripper did not rape any of his victims. So why are they looking for a semen sample on a scarf? Yeah. If they found it, obviously that's not the Ripper. Ripper didn't have any sexual relations with any of these women. So, and then he, he mentioned something about the, the genetics. Uh, as you know, I did genetic research before medical school. I did medical research when I was in medical school. And the DNA sequence that they found was not rare. They, I, I think he thought it was like the 314 C type, and it was really the 315, which is very common. I mean, everything was wrong with that research. So I was, I, whoever did the murders had to been a powerhouse, had to been strong. He had to been able to not fear being caught by the police. And just, you know, murder number four, the Ripper was still in the 
he wasn't afraid. He remained calm. He didn't run and flee. He was prepared to fight. So that's the type of guy we're dealing with. You know, going back to... With an Aaron Kaminsky, 97 pounds, he would have been, been dead meat. Well, I don't know. Well, yeah, but just to play de a little devil's advocate with that, too, sure. is, is, you know, somebody who has a mental imbalance... You know, depending on what it is, they're they can be awfully strong. But I mean, uh, but yeah, I, but I understand I, mean, I, I understand your reasoning. That, that is true. I, so, so Kaminsky could have, but the problem is that I don't think he would have had enough strength and to have these women not scream. One of the murders was committed like just inches away from the building, right. and two people were still awake inside the building. So they would have heard something like a sign of a struggle or. Anything, because she was killed from a frontal member, and one of the Ripper victims was killed from a frontal approach. She had the remember I told you she had the breath mist in her hand. Right. She would have. She saw it coming. She saw the Ripper. She had a smile on her face. If you look at the reports on the autopsies, she had a smile on her face, and she was clutching her her breath mist. You need to be so strong. I mean, yes, you could. He could have fought them. Mm -hmm. they, they were. They, they were. Their hearts weren't beating when he killed them. All the victims, all the first four victims, there was no splatter of blood, which means that when you look, if you chop the neck of someone when they're alive, it's going to splatter blood because the heart's still pumping. Right. And it's going to push all that blood out. The, the blood in these victims all leaked out. That means their hearts were stopped. They were what we call asystolic. They were like they were dead. So Kaczynski would have to hold them by the neck, frontal approach, without them screaming. I don't think he had the power to do it. Okay. I think a guy like Doyle, Mm -hmm. Who was a, a trained boxer, a trained whaler? He was he was hauling fields on ice floes back to a boat. I mean, anybody who's a, who, who knows how heavy that is, you gotta be one strong guy. He could climb drain pipes two stories up in the air easily. He it was like a, it was a known trait of his. He could climb water pipes two stories up a building. He did a police crime scene too. You want to get out of a crisis, you, you, you climb up a drain pipe. Uh, he, he was so strong. I mean, that's the type of guy. His grip was steel. If you can climb a, a drain pipe, you have a solid grip. You could, you could definitely strangle someone without them making a peep. Wow. Yeah, absolutely. My gosh, you know, it's like, it, it's like the pieces are there. Why, you know, yes. why were the police focusing on just the suspects they had? Do you think? So tell me, why were the police focusing on the... Yeah, on, on the suspects that they were focusing on. Um, I think the police were looking for, I mean, I really, you know, the police didn't know where to go. I mean, uh -huh. later on they were they were looking for people like Leather Apron because uh, an officer, uh, you know, one of the officers like Vic thought it was Pizer and he, he followed the guy and had nothing to do with it because they found the Leather Apron and the girl said, you know, he came out with a knife and it had nothing to do with this guy. This poor guy was like brought to jail and he had nothing to do with it. Um, but the police really didn't know where to go. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that we do today, we wear sneakers. The police basically of London invented the sneaker during the Jack the Ripper crimes to sneak up on him. They would actually take discarded uh, pieces of uh, bicycle rubber mm -hmm. and tack them onto their regulation clunky boots so that the, the Ripper wouldn't hear them sneaking up on, on him. So... I mean, they really were just, everybody was out to get him. They, no one knew where to go. They didn't have a motive on this guy. There was nothing, there was none of these, there was nothing to go by. The police were really dumbfounded. And, of course, if you think about Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes 
is always one step ahead of the police, or at least, at least one step ahead, and he makes fun of them. You know, in in the first story, a sign of the uh, 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 study in Scarlet, he actually says, I would rather have a mongrel dog than the entire London police force. That's <laughs> really harsh. I mean, and he wrote that in print. I'd rather have a mongrel dog, a foot dog, than any than the entire London police force. That's a, that's that was a jab, a, like a knife at Scotland Yard, you know, to, to show them their gross incompetence. You know, they're, they're basically they were incompetent. That's what he was showing, and he proved it. If if he is truly Jack the Ripper, which I believe he is, I mean, I'm I'm 100 certain he is the Ripper. Wow, isn't it true that, that Holmes was not in H. H. Holmes was not in England at that time? That he was over in the United States? Yeah, he wasn't in England at the time. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's exactly what Eric Lawson was trying to find. He he knew if he could put if he could connect H. H. Holmes or Mudgett to being in England during the Ripper crimes. Not only did he have his best-selling book, he would have been like the blockbuster book of all time, and he could not honestly put the two together. So. And I had a communication with him. He's like, no, I, I tried. He said, trust me, I tried. I could not. It's, it's not there. There is no connection between them. Another one they tried to do was the Dr. Thomas Neil Cream. And, and the reason why they tried to pin it on this guy is because he, uh, he, he actually did kill some prostitutes. He poisoned them. And he was brought to the gallows. And right before he, the, you know, the trap door opens and your neck snaps, mm -hmm. he screamed out, I am Jack. Sounds like a, a confession, right? But the, the problem was, if you check where he was in 1888, he was, his address would have read Illinois State Penitentiary because he poisoned this guy, Daniel Scott, with strychnine. And oh, that reminds me, so, so he actually, so this guy killed Daniel Scott in America with strychnine, and he also killed those four other prostitutes in England with, with, with poison. I think he used strychnine too. It's kind of, as I mentioned before, MOs don't change, mm -hmm. which is why H.H. H. Holmes is. M.O. is completely different than Jack. It, 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 he, he did poisoning and gas and, you know, like to hear them scream and he locked him in airtight safe, you know, uh, in vaults. I mean, he, he, the Ripper didn't do any of this. The Ripper just went out, did his thing, and, and, and got back. Didn't, wasn't, look, wasn't looking for screams. He wasn't looking for riches. He wasn't going after high London society group people and killing them. He wasn't looking for young prostitutes to have sex with them and then to, to kill them. He didn't do any of that. He found his victim. He didn't waste any time. He killed them. Did what he needed to do ritualistically. Cut the neck. Penal sign number one. Put left breast and hand together. Penal sign number two. Do a facial mutilation. Penal sign number three. Go to a wall after he finished. And write down the Jews will not be blamed for nothing. And give that Masonic clue on a wall and say, now I'm done. And he washed his hands with it. He was complete. So, which is called an ED fix. You get fixated on an idea. You have to carry it out. Once you carry it out, you can go on with your life. And what happens is with an ED fix, you read something or you see something. And it just triggers something inside of you. Usually between the ages of like 24 to 32. Mm -hmm. Doyle at the time was 29 at the, at the times of the murders. And you go, I have to do that. Doyle read that Masonic ritual about Hiram Abeth, how it was an act of revenge, how they got him, and took it to the next level, which was, it was really not just going to reenact it. He was going to reenact it fully, like as if he was killing Hiram Abeth. You know what I've been thinking too, sitting here listening to you, is there any chance, because, you know, like you say, these things happened so quickly and it was so quiet, that maybe he hadn't had contact with these ladies before, that, that he had, you know, 
purchased sex from them before? I don't think, uh, I would I would have to say I don't think Doyle had any contact with okay. any of these women beforehand, especially since we know a lot of who they were with before this. I mean, mm -hmm. we know Thomas Bernardo, who was in charge of a, of a founding hospital, was, was a contact, and we know the fight that one of the victims had, and we know about the fight that another victim had. Like, we actually know all the, basically, the people knew who people were with, because they either lived on the streets or they lived in DOS houses. So... You really didn't have relations that you didn't know about. Mm -hmm. You would, you would have. I don't think he really would have had contact with them beforehand. Just, I just, I, I just can't see it. I think they would both had. There's this one person that someone would have seen massive to another person that someone would have seen at like the different victims. It, it just didn't work out that way. No one had a, a cross coverage. No one had two of the same person identified. Interesting. So it's kind of fat in a way. In a way, it's fascinating because, like you say, he had put kind of clues to this in the books. I, I, <laughs> like right in those mystery books, this this must have been you know maybe a way for him to um, have the material for him. Yeah. So as far as um, as having the material, I think he was looking to you know he knew what he wanted to do. He knew what he needed to do. He knew what he had to leave behind. He knew how to orchestrate everything. So I, I really, I, I know he came in, pre it was all, everything was premeditated, well orchestrated. Doyle is the master of that. We see it in his writings. He knows how to orchestrate and manipulate everything he does. He knew what he had to do with those crime scenes, and he, and he did. He did a great job of making sure the police did not identify or catch even a glimpse of him. He, he was just always one step ahead, just like Sherlock Holmes. He's just always a step ahead. Absolutely. And he must have been, I mean, he, like you say, premeditated. He must have been out at night seeing where these women would hang out, you know, yeah, knowing, I mean, their, knowing their habits. Right, you know, and, and the fact is that Arthur Conan Doyle, when he was about 16, I mean, it's funny. He actually makes sure that his, his fans never put two and two together. He's like, I never went to Baker, I was never on Baker Street in my entire life. Uh, he actually went to Madame Tussauds back when he was like 16, mm -hmm. which was located on Baker Street at the time. He also went back and lived with his aunts and uncles for uh, uh, longer durations over the years, where he would walk to, and he would say, I walked to the East End's um, docks, which is where the women were killed, by the way, mm -hmm. uh, the East End docks and hang out there and watch the boats come in, and I want to be in the Navy, and I want to escape to Brazil. He knew the East End, like the... You know, Doyle walked, uh, no, no, no exaggeration, 32 miles a day at times. He had incredible stamina. In fact, when he was in medical school, he walked about 35 miles to from on the island of Iran to Broderick and to the other city on the island of Iran and back. Half of it was carrying his sister in a wheelbarrow mm -hmm. on his shoulders through hills and dales. The guy was an absolute powerhouse. He walked 32 miles in a day and climbed the mountain. You're talking about someone who walked so much. He must have walked the east end and knew every wind and alleyway. No one knew it better than he did. And another thing about the, the Ripper was, the Ripper was, when he wasn't murdering out on the streets, he was leaving letters for the police, the Vigilance Committee members. I mean, this is someone who really knew what he was doing. He tried to hide his education by spelling words incorrectly in his 
letters, such as he would spell the word knife, like as if he was trying to prove that he was not from England, but he spelled it with the with the, key, with the silent K and left off the E. You, I mean, if you did it, if you were from another country, you would you would leave off the K, not the E. He, he, he really he just was trying to play around with people. And, and and that is one thing in particular that I did notice was how he used his letters to make almost make fun or to challenge them. And, and that is letters. One thing that I, I don't even know if I really put in my book was, and I want you to keep this standard from Alexander John Ellis's creepy nursery rhyme about... Uh, in this, in this book of, of stories that you tell kids, and it's, it's it's like basically let's have a game of play on mm-hmm. this cold and rainy day. Catch me, catch me if you can. Jackie cried, and off we ran. So I love the fact that the Ripper gave himself his name, Jack the Ripper. By the way, he actually used it in a letter. Like now uh, he actually says, "I you can call me basically Jack the Ripper," and he used a catchphrase in every one of his legitimate, authentic letters, and that catchphrase is. Catch me if you can. Catch me when you can. Mm-hmm. Uh, they think they can catch me now. He always came back to the catch me and the jack. It's almost as if he's playing games with huh. Scotland Yard. Not only is he toying with them by the way he writes, but he's toying with them with the, with the words he's putting in there. And as a matter of fact, one of my favorite things he does is he writes a letter to... Um, uh, one of the Freemasons who's also in the Vigilance Committee of Whitechapel, and he writes him with the word Mishta, spelled M-I-S-H-T-E-R. Mm-hmm. Is that, you know Sean Connery, the Scottish accent, the Scottish actor? He, that's exactly how I picture this letter reading Mishta. It's almost saying, whoever I am, I hail from Scotland. That's why I'm using this spelling. Uh, it's very ingenious. So the, even the letters show, show a... Uh, a really fine level of education. Interesting. And how did you, I mean, anybody could have written those letters, so... Well, 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 not everybody, because remember, one of the letters actually had half of a woman's kidney in it that was backed up to the Ripper victim. So, it it, it was the kidney from a victim, so that letter was authentic. It was from Jack. I mean, it was half the woman's kidney. When you put it together, it made the full kidney. So, I know I hear a lot of that, like, oh, the letters were fake. Not the, the kidneys in the letter. It was in a box addressed to like Oppenshaw from a, of a, from the from the hospital. You know, mm-hmm. the, the pathological. Uh, you know, the, he was the pathologist of, of the hospital. That's not a fake letter, right? So I, I know people say that, but it's not true. As a matter of fact, if you look, uh, another great thing about the letters is one of the letters. It's from the. From, I think it's from the from Helena, Has little doodles on the top of the of the of the of the letterhead. And, and it dawned on me, this is something that, it was not just a doodle, the, the Ripper or Doyle must have put these figures, in, and they were like a, um, it was like a cross and bones, it was a skeleton, it was a sarcophagus, it was a knife dripping blood, but it had a, a pigeon sight on it, which is like an X, 
you will find a sarcophagus, a skeleton, and a pigeon cipher. So it's actually the picture that you will find inside a Masonic book. Oh, wow. Or just random. It was, it's a random doodle. Right, right. God, that's fascinating. That is absolutely fascinating. And how long did it take you to do all the research for this book? Well, I, I mean, three years of me just saying, oh my God, Doyle is like really, he's bizarre. I mm -hmm. mean, it, it, it was like just not thinking anything about the Ripper. So the first three years was me just reading about Doyle himself, more the older Doyle. And then all of a sudden when I tried to uh, figure out what he was doing in his early childhood and I tried to trace him to the future, and I found this lack of information, everything I could find from the time he was born up until... Um, the time it was 27, it was easy to find all the information from 27 to 29, right before the Ripper killing. Mm -hmm. There was really no information about him, and that's what I had to, I had to find keys that would open those closed doors, and I, and that's what I was looking for, and I found them. And that was the basis of the book, too. So, uh, I mean, it was all about that one time frame which was looking for Doyle, and that took me seven years of research. Wow. I mean, wow. I really had to read every document, everything I get my hands on, uh, contact Scotland Yard, and uh, tell them actually, one of the things I actually mentioned to Scotland Yard, and it's, and it's funny because they, they actually, they will tell you this is true now on the website, but when I first did it, it wasn't, that a hundred years after the Ripper crimes, uh, the, uh, the, the, the letters, they just said the letters, the letters were mailed back to Scotland Yard. Um, I wrote them back and said, no, only one letter would have been stolen, it would have been the Dear Boss letter. And they wrote me back, no, they were all stolen. I, I said, no, only one letter could have been stolen. It would have had to have been the Dear Boss. Mm -hmm. And a guy wrote me back from Scotland Yard saying, yes, it was the Dear Boss letter, but how did you know that? And I said, because Doyle actually analyzed that letter in the Scotland Yard's Black Museums in, I believe, like 
Was it really hard trying to locate the, you know, to, trying to locate some of these old papers? I mean, with the internet back then, it, was, it, it made it very easy. Uh, I mean, as I mentioned, I, I would call up the, uh, the mental asylums to get the charts of Charles Doyle. I would uh, send emails to the University of Edinburgh, to uh, Doyle School, Stonyhurst College. Uh, David Knight was so generous to send me a bunch of his, uh, his information. Uh, of course, I couldn't believe it when I saw this at first because his ledgers from his teachers use the word Doyle is scatterbrained, slovenly, quarrelsome, dirty habits. Mm-hmm. I mean, you couldn't, I, I couldn't believe this was Doyle. Like, I, it, I know it's all over. I, I, then I read his own thing that um, when he wanted to graduate from the school, they said, Doyle, you may want to become, you may, you may become a uh, civil engineer, but you'll never be civil. Huh. I'm thinking, oh my God, the guy's graduating. You just emotionally beat him up again. And he, and he also said he was beaten and people vouched to this, his, his classmates. He was beaten at his school more than any other student. So here's a guy whose mother's having an affair, his father's an alcoholic, losing his job. He has one, maybe two illegitimate uh, siblings. He's being beaten up in school. He has no money. His parents are poor, and everybody at his school has money. He made it to school because his uncle gave money towards his education and a scholarship that he won. Mm-hmm. And goes on to, later on to, everywhere he goes, he starts to pick fights. He goes to another school in Belkirk, Austria. First day there, he stands again. He goes first day on a boat to be a ship surgeon. He beats up the ship steward, blackens the guy's eye. First day at his job with George T. Budd, he beats the guy up in the house. The wife has to throw him out of the house. Wow. The first day he starts, and everybody can, or my audience, look these things up. Even in Doyle's diary, he'll tell you. His first day he moves to Portsmouth. He got off the boat carrying his suitcase, he dropped his suitcase and involved himself in a street fight. This, this is his first day in town. Yeah. He, starts a, he starts a street fight. He goes back home to, to spend Easter with his mother, walks into the house, he beats up the mother's uh, boyfriend, the, the, the Waller, who he knows for years. The guy was basically incapacitated for three weeks, and the guy he fought said, I'm not fighting you, and Doyle beat him up to like an inch of his life. I mean, this is a person who was, to say the least, temperamental, um, and had a lot of pent-up anger, mm-hmm. and, and especially if you think that you're dying because your father gave you syphilis, I don't even, I mean, I do. I know where it can bring you. It can bring you to a very dark side until you make, make peace with it. And I guess the only way he could was to get this ritual out of his head and say, I revenge my father. I did it. Wow. Hey, thank you so much. This, uh, this hour just blew by. I learned so much. I appreciate it. I really, I really appreciate you having me on your program. Why? I, I really enjoyed talking about my, my book with you, and the strange case of Dr. Doyle, and to bring up points that I, I don't think I've ever had an interview where I brought up so many different parts of <laughs> my book to the audience. Well, I thank like you. I let you in on all the secrets. <laughs> thank you. And where can people find you? Um, well, I do have my little, I have a Facebook page where it's the strange case of Dr. Doyle, and my book can be found on Amazon. I would, the paperback edition, mm-hmm. is a, I, I rewrote it. The paperback is my original work with some added pictures. It's the, it's the book that I love. Um, that's the one I would go for. Mm-hmm. And if not, you, my publisher, it's Square One Publishing. They can sell you the book, and if you want, I will be very happy to send an autographed copy with maybe a little doodle inside for you. Um, and I always write a little 
challenge. So I think these courts are very appropriate for what we're doing here. When a doctor does go wrong, he is the first of criminals. He has nerve and he has knowledge with this. Really, Arthur Conan Doyle, a.k.a. Jack the Ripper, and, 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 and what the impossible things are, we've eliminated all the things that make it impossible, and what remains in our book is the truth. That is awesome. Thank you so thank much. You. I really appreciate it. You have a good rest of the evening, but thank you so much for being on. My pleasure. Thank you again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was pretty cool. I learned a lot. A lot. And I mean a lot. Anyway, uh, guys, you see the donate button at the bottom? Uh, donate to PayPal me at California Haunts if you like the show so we can keep we can keep it round and keep it rolling, as my dad would say, uh, you know, to uh, keep this thing funded and keep us going so we can get more guests like, like this gentleman. Um, also, like I said the other night, our numbers are up. Uh, they're rising and rising and rising every month, you know, as, as, far, as far as people watching the show. And if you guys go over to the YouTube channel, which is California Haunts on YouTube, you, you have to type it in to get there, but YouTube California Haunts. Go out there and become a subscriber, okay? Click click to become a subscriber so we can keep adding to our subscribers. Uh, this will go out after after I get off the air here. This is going to go out as a podcast, too, so we're going to hit Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and a few other podcasts that are out there. But I just want to thank everybody for, uh, for coming, and I've had a kind of difficult day, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of here, not here, you know. But uh, tomorrow night, I'm going to... Things are changing tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, I'm going to be on the. I'm going to be in the hot seat for a show. Okay, I'm, I'm going to be a guest, and I'm going to put the link up on my Facebook page, and I'll try and get the link up elsewhere. But but Joey uh, Medea, uh, who was on the show a few a couple months ago, invited me to be a guest on his show. So I'm going to be talking about the paranormal in general and my team and how how you know the stuff we've encountered and and, and the techniques we use when we're out ghost hunting. So you guys might be interested in that, okay? Coming up Monday, we're going to be talking about NDEs again. But the neat thing about these NDEs is that this this particular person not only had you know not only had three NDEs, she also came in contact with her guardian angels, and she has stories about you know the angels she came in contact with those three times. So that's going to be an interesting show coming up on Monday. In the meantime, you guys have a good rest. Yeah, good evening. I'll see some of you tomorrow when I'm on Joey's show. And if not, I will see you guys on Monday. But have a great weekend, and I thank you for coming. And again, please, please donate. Share the show. Let's not forget to share the show. Share with five people, okay? If you didn't like the show, share it with five people anyway, okay? Because we're, we're trying to get more and more people involved in this, and the sharing is working. It, it is starting to work. It's starting to take hold. So I'm really excited about that. Um, so anyway... You guys have a good evening, and like I said, I will see you maybe tomorrow. Okay?